Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. So today, I'm really excited to have my buddy David Chalmers on the podcast. David is a philosopher at New York University and the Australian National University. Officially, he's professor of philosophy and co-director of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Consciousness at NYU, and about 20% of the time, he's professor of philosophy at ANU. His work is in the philosophy of mind and in related areas of philosophy and cognitive science. He's especially interested in consciousness, but he's also interested in all sorts of other issues in the philosophy of mind and language, metaphysics and epistemology, and the foundations of cognitive science. Um, lots of – I just had a nerdgasm <laughs> there with all, the, all those words. Uh, thanks, David, so much for chatting with me tonight. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be here with you on your podcast. Yeah. Well, you know, there we, you know, we're when we're talking about, you know, how I wanted to get you on the podcast and such. You know, I promised you I wouldn't just ask all the standard questions, you know, that everyone always asks you over and over again. What is consciousness? What is free will? You know, but I think what is really interesting is that you're telling me um, that you estimate about thirty percent probability that we are living in the matrix. Is that right? Oh yeah, I go, uh, I go back and forth, uh, anywhere between ten percent and. Uh, and 50%, but definitely greater than zero. Definitely, uh, definitely some chance. What do you think? Those are big numbers. Yeah. Um, I never uh, estimated it as that high, but I think that we need to like really totally define our terms. And tell me what, what, what living the matrix would mean to you. Well, the extreme case is that of an entirely simulated universe. So, you know, right now we know how to make simulated worlds like virtual reality, you know, there's SimCity or SimLife or SimEarth, but the extreme case is simulating the whole universe, Sim Universe, if you like. 
then there's really two ways this could go. It could be an interact a simulation that we go into that we're interacting with. You know, our brain is outside the simulation. That's how it goes with ordinary virtual reality, and that's how it was for Neo in the movie The Matrix. His brain was outside the simulation, or it could be that uh, the brain is simulated too, and we are ourselves entirely creatures of the simulation. And it could be that as technology goes on, people are going to make simulations of universes like this, of both of those forms. That just raises the question, might that be the reality that we're in? Because we're in. Yeah, there might be no way to tell from the inside. There is no way to tell, but it would. It seems like it would be quite an elaborate setup when you think of how many players there are in this world, down to like the very microscopic ants. You know what I mean? I mean, is in this idea is would every? I mean, everything has to be simulated. If it's you can't have like part simulated world and part not, right? Well, you can try, but you're going to get in trouble. You know, I once saw this movie, The Thirteenth Floor. Oh, I just, love that uh, movie! I love that movie. Yeah, well, you know, in that movie, they, it turns out they just simulate Southern California. <laughs> and then the guy gets in a car and starts driving towards Las Vegas. At a certain point, the uh, the road says, close for repair, go no further. And he keeps going, and eventually the mountains turn into faint green lines. So. I remember that. I remember that. Well, <laughs> yeah. you know what's interesting is that, I mean, a really clever way to do that would be obviously to um, implant the memories um, and, and not, you know, I think that, you know, there exists all this big production, you know, that someone would have to simulate. When in reality, it's much smaller than that just i just have the memories of it right yeah although what happens when you try to go there you know you get on a plane to yes for a while they just simulated australia then i went to new york for the first time i flew to new york and it's like oh shit now we got to simulate new york well if we don't people. have free will yeah. you know i mean yeah. if we really i mean the implication of the fact that we if we live in this kind of world is that i mean we really don't have free will right in that world so, we could have uh, free will we could oh, really? it's possible oh, I, I don't think it's inconsistent with free will we could be living in a simulated universe but still be making our own decisions about you know what? what to do in that universe that's a great point i i uh, as soon as almost as i came out of my mouth i then wanted to take it back because i then thought about like you know what about genetic algorithms that we use with computers and stuff you know or learning you know machine learning and stuff um it's not like we in in a way machines have free will when we you know just program in probabilities and they kind of learn themselves I mean, you might think that if our brain is part of the simulation, then that's worse Then somehow, you know, we're going to be computers too, so we won't have free will. But it's not obvious what's worse about a computer here compared to just, you know, the kind of computers that our brains are, you know, mm. either whether our minds are implemented in physical brains or on computers, you know, maybe they're both deterministic and maybe there's a worry about free will in either case, but it's not clear why it's worse to have a silicon computer for a mind than to have a biological brain for a mind where free will is concerned. Yeah. And you have a very interesting uh, take on consciousness. And, you know, there, you, most people, when they say they're a dualist, people kind of laugh at them, you know, like, or they kind of like, kind of say in academia, you know, they're like, or especially, and I should even be clear, I say neuroscientists laugh at them. <laughs> um, but um, you're a, what, a unique kind of dualist, right? Yeah, well, dualism means many different things. I think when many neuroscientists hear dualism, they think, you know, something like there's a soul interacting with the brain that will survive your death and so on. I'm a dualist in a much weaker sense in that I think consciousness is an irreducible property of the brain or of ourselves, one that can't fully be explained in terms of 
underlying goings on in the brain and ordinary physical processes. But this is something we're used to in the physical sciences. We take some things as fundamental, like space and time and mass and charge. I think consciousness has to be taken as fundamental too. Now, this is very controversial. You know, plenty of people disagree. But um, at the same time, I don't think there's anything remotely unscientific about this view, and it's totally consistent with all the work going on right now in the, uh, the science of consciousness. No, I agree. Well, I recently had an interesting chat with Dr. Siegel, who talked about how the mind is not you know, purely uh, in our skull. Uh, he very much is this believer in the mind as being this um, integrated uh, flow of information that is deeply connected to the universe. And this is this is a scientist saying this. So it, you know. Oh yeah, not- well, this is a place actually where a bunch of my different views and interests intersect. Because yeah, Good. number one, I think the you know the the brain could be computational. Number two, I think consciousness may be irreducible. But number three, in another line of work, I'm very much interested in the idea that the mind is partly a product of the environment. And this is something that Andy Clark and I called the extended mind, where our interactions with our the environment around us, often parts of our environment, play the role of parts of our mind, as in the case where, for example, you know, phone numbers in my smartphone's uh, memory is taking over the role of my biological memory. I now remember phone numbers with my phone rather than with my brain memory. So, you know, my environment there, here my smartphone, is becoming literally part of uh, part of my mind. And I think that's consistent with this idea of integrating the brain with the environment. I think so. Um, you know, but just from like a, a personal perspective, when I have existential dread, it's not comforting to me to know that when I uh, when my con- when my when my brain stops functioning and therefore this form of consciousness no longer exists, even if my iPhone or all the things I've created or all the extensions of me still continue, I will not. There's a there's an I that will never be aware of that. Is it? So that's not how comforting is that to me? I think that's right. I mean, at least insofar as the extended mind hypothesis is concerned, there's always you, the conscious biological being at the center. And the claim would not be that the iPhone has a mind itself. The claim would be that it's kind of an extension of your mind that extends your capacity. But if your brain was to die, then the iPhone going on, that wouldn't be much comfort for you. To get something a bit more comforting, we might move to a slightly different scenario and think about the possibility of uploading your brain onto a computer. We can't do that yet, but just say eventually we could record all the information in your brain and the connections among all the neurons and their states and activation patterns and gradually, you know, load them into a computer one at a time until, you know, for a while you were 90% brain and 10% computer and then 50, 50, (laughs) then 10, 90, and ultimately a hundred percent computer. Well, that's a kind of gradual uploading process. And some people, including me, are sympathetic with the idea that you could survive that process. And at the end of that, you might really, be there. That wouldn't so much be extending the mind as uploading the mind. But since our focus here seems to be, you know, technology of all sorts, that might be one way to use technology to achieve some kind of immortality. Well, my gosh, that is, um, you raised so many interesting questions with that, that the little thought experiment there. You know, you, of course, you know, you, the, the plank by plank, you know, issue about what's, at what extent do we cease being who we are, right? And um, yeah. I mean, I, I mean that I would be very interesting to like, like self experiment myself with that, um, and and one and because I feel like you know analogous is like when we 
start getting dementia, when we start it's almost like when our break starts when our brain starts breaking down when we get really old, it's kind of a natural experiment of what happens, you know, kind of plank by plank when you lose that. I feel like if I'm when I once I start feeding that into the system, there will be a certain point where I really do no longer feel as though I I am myself and then I will lose awareness. Eventually I'll lose awareness of myself. So and and then even though it's fed all to the computer, I'm just critical that that um what I'm feeding to the computer there, like the computer kind of is is taking over that consciousness. Hmm. Like, what if we stipulate that the computers, the computer chips are playing exactly the same role in your cognitive system that the neurons were playing? So maybe you wouldn't even notice <clears throat> the difference and you keep behaving exactly the same way in that same wonderful old Scott way that we're, uh, <laughs> that we're all used to. You'll carry on doing your podcast with your computer brain and the listeners aren't going to be able to tell the difference. You won't be able to tell a difference from the inside in that case, might you be prepared to say it's still you? That's so interesting because I mean, what is the objective truth? I mean, is it is it is it a was that a just a um, is that just a um, an, an illusion? You know, like I mean, we we technically I'm I'm definitely not this. I'm a completely different person than I was when I was ten from a cellular level, right? So you could make the case that it's an illusion that I'm the same person that yeah. I was when I was eleven, right? Some people think it's an illusion that we're the same person from moment to moment. No, you know, so that's, moment where that's where it gets interesting. That's where it gets, yeah. Or maybe every night when we go to sleep, you know, we become unconscious. And then in the dawn, a new consciousness <laughs> breaks, you know, a new consciousness <laughs> breaks open. A new person is born every day. I mean, that look, that's a very interesting proposition, but it doesn't seem consistent with some facts <laughs> like when i wake up in the morning i have a great continuity of memories that i yeah. had the day before okay um, memories help but you know you could i could create a teleporter duplicate of me who remembers being me the previous day but isn't me but who okay then who's creating you know who's creating that i mean are we back to the simulation idea here again like um yeah i think we i think we're giving someone too much something too much credit there you know, for that, it doesn't, you know, um, my point of though is that doesn't seem most parsimonious. <laughs> um, I mean, a lot um, of these thought experiments. Yeah. To so me... it's a simpler view that we're the same person who continues over time. And yeah. most people don't really believe that we change our identities from day to day. But I think for similar reason, reasons, most people think the most parsimonious view is that we continue over our lifetime despite the change in matter. And extending that, it's then tempting to say the most parsimonious view is if I uploaded my brain gradually and continuously to a computer, then I could continue that way. So I don't know if – I mean this is so interesting. I don't know if the best solution is to gradually do it then. I almost feel like for that continuity, I'd want to be one big dump immediately uh, to kind of just jump, snap into this new state. I think once once it's gradual, I, I feel like it it just is not going to feel. Uh, it's going to be very confusing. If, if you start, what do you feel? How do but, you feel about the case though? If we do it non gradually, yeah. How do you feel about the case where we keep the old brain around, still yeah. still functioning, and upload it onto a computer, and there's a new person there too? No, I mean one that of could, them new, right? The great, great. I was actually just going to pose uh, not uh, like the fifty-fifty thing, but you know, like that, like I like I get fifty percent on the computer, and fi and we know that fifty percent is is enough. All you need for a conscience to emerge, and that, but but I like yours thought experiment better, where it's a hundred hundred. Yeah. Now that's fascinating, and I, I, my gosh, what would what would 
be the case there. I mean, it's not like uh, you have a you've duplicated yourself, but you know you've duplicated your your consciousness. Um, you know, I I we can kind of duplicate. You know, it's funny when you have like marriage, people who are married after a certain amount of years, they start looking the same. They started talking the same. And in a sense, little by little, when you're married, you're like duplicating consciousness with two people. Mm-hmm. Or, still two people, though. You're still two you separate people you in are. sync with each other. So likewise, you and your twin would probably, your uploaded twin would probably rapidly become two people. You'd be in different environments, having different experiences. But maybe it would be as if you had suddenly become twins or something. Hey, here's my twin right over there. Here's uploaded Scott. He's just like me. Yeah, I, th- I could see that. He's not me. You know, because, well, yeah, it, clearly this stuff is not operating at a gene- purely genetic level because we know identical twins um, are often very different uh, in in lots of key ways. They don't have the same and a very different consciousness emerges. So we, we can't like just plank by plank transfer over genes and expect to get the same thing. This is why this is a really, really tricky issue because even from a neuroscience perspective, you can't just um, completely replicate someone's uh, uh, neuronal structure of their brain and expect to get the same consciousness and memories out of out of the person, right? Maybe eventually, you know, they are working on this brain mapping project and not even close yet. But I think one of the aims of the project is to eventually be able to act, to map the activity of all the neurons in the brain and all the connections via the Connectome project and so on. So who's to say that maybe eventually we couldn't map the whole state and maybe even further after that, get the whole thing up and running on a computer? Yeah, who knows? Hey, I'm keeping an open mind. <laughs> I'm certainly not. Yeah, it's not going to happen in the next ten years or the next <laughs> right. twenty, but eventually, right. who knows? Eventually, yeah. I mean, I, this a lot of this come, you know, uh, raises some fascinating questions about will uh, cryogenics ever be successful? You know, there are people that yeah. are um, freezing themselves in the hopes that someday they will be able to upload. For exactly, that's the hope, right? Or, or the hope is that they'll find some sort of medical. Um, way to solve something that we don't currently have. Um, but I think a lot of people are hoping that you'll be frozen so that like, even if it takes like 20,000 years from now, yeah. you know. Cryogenics uh, is a kind of intermediate stopgap. You know, right now the technology is not ready, but just freeze my brain well enough and maybe eventually the technology will be ready to unfreeze me. I mean, one worry is that right now the technology is not good enough even to do freezing properly and probably a lot of information is being lost in the uh, the freezing process, but yeah. I suppose people are just hoping that enough information is kept around that in that you know thousand years time or whatever, yes. some really smart super intelligence of the future will be able to reconstruct us. My advice is always, hey, well, leave your don't just leave your brain around. Leave a bunch of books and you know videos of you and tapes and so on, so they have all the information they possibly can about you, and then they can re- they can try and reconstruct you from that. I love that idea. Have you ever thought about uh, getting that done? Yeah. Could you uh, make sure we leave this podcast in the uh, in the, the cryogenic chamber uh, with me? Uh, <laughs> that way, and, and same for you, and then we'll have these two. Ma- well, do you want to be in the same chamber with me? Psychologist reconstructed. <laughs> do you want to be in the same chamber with me? <laughs> oh, for sure. Oh, uh, um, yeah. Then who are they going to wake up first? Well, I think that, you know, that it certainly is very optimistic that, like, we'll ever – 
I mean, it doesn't look like humanity is going in a direction right now where we're going to like, you know, that that will be the case. Look, I, I sound very pessimistic right now, which I know is not good for a positive psychologist, but I don't, you know, I, I, with, I, I don't, with everything's going in the world right now, I, I think it's uh, much more likely that, uh, that, I don't know, just 20,000 year, years from now, are we going to reach a point where there's this great utopia and that it's like, oh yeah, yeah sure. We're going to remember these people from 20,000 years ago and, 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 and try to uh, resuscitate them. Yeah. Well, there's a whole lot of ways things can go wrong. You know, I mean, I think we're entering a danger period right now at the uh, at the human level and at the international level. Um, but, you know, a few years down the line, there's going to be any number of other. I mean, short term, there's nuclear weapons. Longer Correct. term, there's climate change. But longer term after that, there's all kinds of existential risks to the whole human race, including the possibility of artificial intelligence. And whether we might develop AIs that somehow take over the world and then lead to uh, lead to bad consequences. You know, there are a lot of people thinking about how we can negotiate all these things in the right way. So I'm not maybe I'm not as pessimistic as you are, but I do think there's plenty of ways things can go wrong. Plenty of ways. Um, so that's an interesting question. What do you what do you think about the singularity idea that um, Kurzweil he puts a estimate really in his own lifetime? I like to separate the whole singularity idea of artificial superintelligence. You know, there's the idea of of AIs getting to be smarter than humans, and then there's claims about the time frame. To me, the most interesting claims aren't the ones about the time frame. Yeah, Ray Kurzweil and others sometimes say, oh, it's just 20 or 30 years off. My own view is that's very implausible. AI actually moves very slowly. I mean, late, lately, there's been a big bubble of excitement about AI because of deep learning, but it hasn't really corresponded to a fundamental advance. It's really been more about the technology crossing a certain threshold where it's suddenly become useful. And there's still huge gaps to be crossed of a level of understanding cognition until we get to anything like a human level, artificial general intelligence. You know, so maybe it's 100 years, who knows? Maybe it's 50 years, maybe it's 100 years. But for me, the interesting question is what happens next? Once you get to a human level AI, Pretty soon after that, just by steady improvements, you're going to get to a better than human level AI that's more capable than we are. Then it's going to be, among other things, better at creating AIs than we are. So it's going to be able to create an AI smarter than itself. And that one will be able to create an AI smarter than itself. And this is where we get to what some people call the intelligence explosion, the idea that we there'll be a rapid path from human level AI to super intelligence, something way beyond what we can comprehend. And this sounds like science fiction, but a few years ago, uh, 2010, I wrote a paper on this trying to subject it to philosophical analysis. And I came to the conclusion there's actually a pretty plausible argument here, one we should take seriously. So I do think we should take very seriously the idea that we'll eventually get to human level AI. And not long after that, there's the possibility of something way beyond us. Yes, I think that that is true. And I, I, I the, what I envision is that that the first stage of this is that humans will be using it, machines to kind of augment themselves. So they'll they'll be it, it it won't be such a separation between like you know machines taking over yet. It's almost like humans who are part machine, part human kind of taking yeah. over. Well, this is already happening with, via this yeah. kind of extended mind thesis I talked about. Our yeah. our smartphones and Google and so on. Those are already augmenting us and augmenting our intelligence in all kinds of ways, making us much more capable and knowledgeable 
than we were before. I suspect in a few years, once we have, for example, once everyone is wearing augmented reality glasses that are yeah. recognizing things in our environment with AI and feeding us all kinds of information and AI advice, then we're going to turn. There was this great book, uh, science fiction novel by Charles Stross, Accelerando, where he called these things the exospecs. Everyone uses their artificially intelligent exospecs. One guy has his exospecs stolen, then he turns into a gibbering wreck. He just can't function anymore. To me, that's a realistic that's a realistic future. We'll come more and more to rely on these devices, and we'll we will ourselves be augmented, partially artificial intelligences for some period before we get to fully autonomous AI. For sure. And, and then what it's going to do for medicine, I think, is going to be huge. I think it's going to increase our life extension um, in the sense that, you know, we'll have artificial hearts, you know, we'll have artificial, you know, bit by bit, we're going to start because we're already starting to see that now. And you can kind of take that to the nth degree, right? Yeah. Artificial eyes, artificial yeah. ears, artificial nerves, artificial neurons, you know, people work, have worked on neuromorphic retinas and so on. Before long, it's going to be at the level of the neurons and you know at some point i don't know when exactly at some point people are going to start seriously thinking about this idea of the you know the prosthetic implants in the brain yeah no i think it's going to i think that's inevitable and you know i i think just going moving moving forward many years um history p- people will look back on um a certain epic of humanity that was a new form of human evolution you know like we haven't seen or really can't imagine although i feel like me and you are kind of imagining it right now um there will be this epic of 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 humanity where there is this new form of evolution that just that 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 darwin never could have um ever even imagined you know because um it's not organic evolution it's not purely um human evolution i should say it's it's a it's a new kind of evolution where it be, kind of becomes like this interesting arms race of um of who and what countries can have the greatest augmented technology yeah i do think computer technology here is basically the the game changer compared to anything that came before because computer technology basically enables you to create simulated or artificial versions of almost anything you like and it, may, it allows you to create artificial minds as we're seeing, you know, in this discussion about AI. Yeah. And it also allows us to create artificial worlds, you know, simulated worlds, virtual reality worlds. So it's easy to imagine that at some point, you know, A, most of the people around are going to be artificial minds, and B, those people may to some very large extent be inhabiting artificial or virtual worlds. After all, why restrict us to this one world with all of its limits? and specificity when there could be an infinite number of virtual worlds to explore. It's easy to imagine, you know, even if we're not already simulated, then there's going to be a vast future of simulated universes ahead of us. No, I think that's right. You know, if we are, I keep going back to the idea, if we are simulated, how did you come arrive to these, you said between 10 and 50% and you changed, I don't know if you're being tongue in cheek there, or do you actually, um, like, what's going into this calculus? I don't know. There's this nice argument by Nick Bostrom that maybe we are in a simulation, and it's a probabilistic argument. The naive way to put it is that, look, we know that any advanced civilization is going to have the capacity to create a whole lot of simulated universes. So that ultimately, there'll be way more simulated universes than unsimulated universes, and way more unsimulated unsimil- people 
than unsimulated people. Maybe 99% of all the people in the universe, all the conscious beings in the universe, will be simulated, and only 1% will be non-simulated. And then you turn around and say, well, then what are the odds that I am unsimulated? What are the odds that I'm one of the lucky 1%? And presumably you go, well, maybe only one in 100. So it should be 99% likely that I'm simulated. But then you think, <laughs> well, there's a couple of loopholes in that argument. Maybe, for example, it could turn out that almost no you, no super intelligent civilizations will choose to create simulations. They may decide not to. Or maybe they'll all kill themselves off right. before they... Uh, uh, before they get to the, the ability of creating simulations. Or maybe for some reason, simulated universes are impossible. So there's a few loopholes here, what I call simulation blockers. Maybe we'll die. Maybe we can't do this. Maybe we'll choose not to. But then, so maybe the conclusion is disjunctive. Either most beings are simulated or one of these other things happens. So following that reasoning, then we say maybe, okay, I don't know which of those possibilities is the most likely, but it still looks to like, Looks like, you know, maybe at least 20, 25% were in a simulation and 20, 25% for all the others. That's one way to get there. A bit of spurious mathematics for you. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that answer, actually. Um, that helped me understand better what is going into that calculus. Um, so I, I feel like there's lots of things that – is it possible that lots of these things that we do as humans are kind of like – pissing off the simulators like we're kind of like cheating the system in a way like you know like what what if like we were meant to die at age 100 and and you know we in some way that like the, the computer goes berserk if we do actually figure out this way of living much longer that we do things with technology where we start simulating things our own selves and then i mean couldn't 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 like we be messing or tempting fate <laughs> in a way yeah, it all depends on the motives and motivations of the simulators, and it's very hard to figure that out. It's almost like a theological position we're in. These these simulators are our gods. They created our universe, and now we're trying to figure out their character to figure out <laughs> how best to please them. You know, should I be good the rest of my life so I get to so I get uploaded into the afterlife or uh, or what? You're saying, okay, well, you know, maybe they care about this, maybe they care about that. Well, here's another possibility. Maybe they've just created a million universes overnight. They're running for just a whole bunch of, just for a scientific experiment. And the, they're going to let them all run. And in the morning, they're going to gather statistics. And this is something they do as a matter of course in their labs every day. And they couldn't care less what we get up to. Right. We're, just, uh, we're just part of some giant impersonal uh, experiment for them. Then all the appeals, we, all the praying we like to... Uh, to God isn't uh, isn't going to help. We might as well just live our lives. Well, that's very possible. And you know, what do you what do you make about um, the universe? Its its scope is so enormous, and in and you think you know there was this point where it all started with a little tiny point, a little dot, right? You know, before it started yeah. expanding, and it's just fascinating to just think to yourself, like, what was before that? And 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 what what like what's the point like what like why why does that why did that ever exist you know and like you know if if time didn't exist before that fine you know that's fair enough you know but but why you know um you know I mean it, these are like fundamental questions yeah. of human existence yeah. but the simulation um, hypothesis doesn't answer those questions it just yeah. pushes it back a bit why do we exist 
calls the simulator creator this. Okay, great. Well, now who created this? Why does the simulator exist? I mean, of course, this is an exact parallel of what you get with traditional questions about God. Absolutely. Some people want to explain the universe. Why do we all exist? Because God created us. Well, great. Well, that just now pushes back the question to God. How did God ever get there? So, um, yeah, you know, philosophers don't have really good answers. I, 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 I'm not sure I was, anybody does. I was hoping you had the answer. <laughs> Let me tell you my pet theory of everything, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's still fun to talk to you about this stuff. Like, and just imagine um, what the different possibilities are. What what are the different possibilities um, when we die? Right. I mean, is it possible that like I'll, that like this consciousness does wake up in something that's like. Oh, and I'm told that I was in a simulation. Is that possible? Look, my inclination is to think that our brains are needed for our consciousness. And as we die, probably our consciousness will die. But, you know, if we are in a simulation, then the possibilities start to get more interesting. If we are in a simulation, then our brains are basically a bit of software, correspond to a bit of software running on a computer. And if someone, if the simulators so chose, they presumably could choose that when people's biological bodies die, then they somehow they upload all that information from the brain, they extract that software and they put it in some other environment. Maybe, for example, they would use it to control some new body up in their own world. And for us, that could be experienced, I suppose, as something like moving to an afterlife, taking part in some kind of different universe, maybe even some kind of... Uh, of heaven, there was actually a Black Mirror episode about this um, in the recent in the recent new batch that was uh, that was pretty good. Um, I'm not saying that's the way it is going to go. I'm saying that's one one way it could go um, if we are in a simulated universe that does raise interesting quasi theological possibilities. So you know maybe it just uh, raises a tiny bit of hope for immortality and uh, an afterlife, even from a completely naturalistic perspective. So one of the interesting things that for me, I've always been completely atheistic and not much sympathy for any kind of religion, but it is interesting to see how this idea of simulation technology can start to reinstate some fairly traditional <laughs> theological questions in a quite different naturalistic guise. Yeah, no, I, I totally see that, you know, as you're, as you're describing this, it sounds exactly like these ideas we've created of the afterlife. Um, what what are some other burning questions that you have these days? You have a lot. You have a lot. Oh, That's a you know, I've been thinking a lot about technology in general and its impact on philosophy. You know, some people, and on life more generally, you know, some people are very techno-negative. They think that uh, it's got all kinds of doom and gloom consequences. I tend to be techno-positive. I love technology, you know, virtual reality technology, AI technology, the internet, there's all kinds of wonderful things, although, of course, it can be abused as well as used, as well as used well. Lately, I've got myself a whole lot of uh, virtual reality tools to, uh, to play around with. In, the, um, in, my, in my office, in my study, I've got an Oculus Rift and an HTC Vive and a Samsung Gear VR, and I've been playing around. Which one do you like best? You know, I think so far the HTC Vive, although um, that's got this very cool room scale virtual reality with motion controllers, although I just got the new controllers for the Oculus Rift called Oculus Touch, and I still need to uh, to set those up. But anyway, it's been amazing to play around with all this virtual reality, and it raises all kinds of questions about the metaphysics, the ontology 
of the worlds in virtual reality? For example, are these just hallucinations? Are they unreal worlds? Or is this some kind of real reality that we're <laughs> interacting with in VR? You know, I'm actually inclined towards a view where virtual reality is a real reality. It's a reality made of computers. It's digital, but it's still real for all that, which I think goes against the most common philosophical view where it's some kind of illusion or fiction. David, I have been thinking, I'm so glad you said that. And I have been saying to people, I think that human imagination is real in some sense as well. That is interesting. I mean, you can make an interesting parallel from this. I just read a paper by someone saying, well, maybe dreams, maybe hallucinations are analogous to virtual reality in this respect. And then once you say, you know, if a dream can do this, if hallucination can do this, why not yeah. imagination? Of course, imagination is to some extent under our control in a way in which what happens in the VR is not. So it's not as independent of us. Some people think mind independence, you know, independence of us is a strong condition on something being <clears throat> fully real. So maybe the imagination is just somewhere on the spectrum. But I think, you know, maybe still this, to some extent our imagination has a certain autonomy. You know, you us, said right? independent. Daydreaming runs uh, wild. Yeah, you know, you said independent of us. And I mean, that's interesting because there is so many selves. I mean, it is, there's one sense that um, there is a simulator in our body that is, you know, simulating, you know, there's particular brain networks that are doing the simulation of the imagination. And there's another part of us that is metacognitively viewing the simulation. So I, I'm not so sure that that is true that we, that there's a, there isn't a we that is not in control of it. That seems especially right in the case of dreams, right? There's this dream spinner who, when you're at dreaming, you seem to have no access to the dreams. Correct. They're Correct. just doing their thing. With imagination, I don't know, the two parts feel a bit closer together. When I imagine something, it feels like I can control it more than I can control what happens in a dream. But also it does seem to have some autonomy. You know, daydreams will just evolve without me trying to do anything. My mind will wander in different directions. So maybe there's, yeah, there's also an imagination spinner who's at least to some extent separate from the agent who's experiencing the imagination themselves. Yeah. So you may be right. Thank you. You're the first person not call me crazy when I say I think imagination <laughs> could – I think I could make an argument that imagination is real in some sense. Um, so what do you play – like when you do the Oculus – because I just – my parents just bought me <laughs> – I sound like a five-year-old, don't I? But for Hanukkah, they just bought me the PlayStation for VR. Oh, VR. That one, that one I don't have. So uh, yeah. I'm interested to hear how that goes. Uh, yeah, and I'm very interested to – I haven't tried the others, so I don't know the difference. But what do you play on the Oculus Rift? Like, what do you do with it? There's all kinds of video games available. You know, really? standard video games, space war games, and first-person shooters, and so on. Now, I am not myself much of a video gamer, so uh, that's not really my thing. So, but so I find myself doing doing other things, uh, non-gaming apps, especially. There's Google Earth on the HTC Vive. That's extremely cool. You can explore the whole Earth, and I can actually go down to my uh, to my home, um, get on the balcony of my apartment. Really? And so on. It's not quite, you know, uh, I can fly through New York. It's pretty amazing. Um, at the level of human beings and cars and so on, it gets a bit coarse-grained and a bit wonky. But, you know, flying over New York in VR is, <laughs> is pretty amazing. And there's all kinds of cool little... Uh, Cool other little environments you can just inhabit. You can see 360-degree movies. There are environments where you can assemble little contraptions. 
There are little lab demo games. Right now, it's, you know, people haven't developed really full-scale, rich realities. Or when they have, they've typically been ported from a pre-existing video game. But I think that kind of thing, you know, in the future, it's probably going to be a technology for social networking. Facebook bought out Oculus, and I think that's probably how they see it. In the future, we're going to be doing this podcast, not just audio, not even just video. We're going to hang out in VR, and I'll have an avatar, and you'll have an avatar, and it'll be like we're talking to each other, and someone else wants to come in and listen to the podcast, then they'll just come into the VR with us and watch us talk. Hi, guys. I imagine a world where it's all beautiful people in virtual world but because <laughs> but 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 because of that fact people have not spent any time keeping up their looks in the other the real world the you know the other world so you have a, a whole world of like really schlubby looking people like that are all talking to each other looking beautiful <laughs> yeah and the beauty is not going to be worth much if everyone can be uh can be equally beautiful we're gonna have to find different ways to value people That's other fitness indicators from like a you know a darwinian perspective right what are gonna yeah. be the, what are gonna be the fitness indicators <laughs> yeah i don't know maybe it's just something something crappy like intelligence i don't know <laughs> maybe everyone's gonna have a super intelligence module too and after a while there's got to be no way to differentiate people except little random quirks of personality and a, and a quirky guy like you scott you know you just get you're gonna be valued as as a unique and wonderful resource Oh, you just made me blush. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, David. Well, I, yeah, I was, you know, I sent you this article today, right, uh, with people who try virtual realities um, environments. Um, it was it was written by my friend Rebecca Searles, and that article says, you know, shows that like some people experience this dissociative experience where they start to question whether or not the real world is real. You know. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I go into the VR and then. I come out and things do seem a little bit somehow shaky. My hypothesis is something like this. Once you hang out in virtual reality enough, you start perceiving things as virtual. You start to, you know, have a sense that you're in a virtual world. It's not exactly the same as perceiving the physical world. Um, you actually kind of see the sense things as being virtual. Um, in a mixed reality, for example, you might sense some things as virtual and other things as not. So I think sometimes when you come out of VR and then go into a non-virtual environment, you retain that seeing things as virtual. And even in the physical world, you're seeing some things around you as virtual objects. And your perception is as if you're in a virtual reality, right. even though you're not. So I call this the phenomenology of virtuality. Like there's a whole kind of ph phenomenal sense and appearance and experience of things around us being virtual and sometimes that can be illusory you could be in a non-virtual world and still see things as virtual i think maybe this virtual derealization that people talk about in the normal world the post vr sadness uh, maybe that's an instance of that kind of an illusion of the phenomenology of virtuality well just to circle back to the whole beginning of this conversation you know i mean if, if it is true that we live in a um, a simulation it's possible it's just it very it's it's like vr that's evolved so great that it, everything just is this clear as our eyes can see it but in reality what i'm in right now what you're in you know is is actually is actually just another virtual world right just a better a more optically yeah i mean a good enough virtual reality technology is probably going to be indistinguishable correct from a non-virtual world right now of course it's not it's pretty right now it's not you get screen door effects, you get pixels, but give it a few years. Yeah, I, I could see the thought experiment 
where yeah, I could where that I think it's realistic that someday we will have virtual reality that is indistinguishable from what our optics can see right now and what we are calling the real world. And I think things are going to get really tricky then because and not only tricky but 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 I actually I so I just I want to end this interview by saying I started this interview being think putting the probability that we live in the matrix at about seven percent. And mm-hmm. and actually now that I'm thinking about this and, and more and having this conversation with you and and realizing that. Um, what I'm seeing right now could potentially be um, a very evolved simulation. I, I'm actually I'm upping my percentage as well. So where are you now? Um, I'm going to put it at twenty six, twenty seven percent. Wow, twenty six point five. That's uh, yeah. that's uh, that's getting high. I mean, you're right though. If it's indistinguishable from the uh, from the inside, there's no way for us to decisively tell one way or another. So a lot's going to rest on your prior probabilities that, you know, these simulated universes are going to be created or they're not. And the more you think about it, the more it can start to seem kind of likely that they yeah. might be created. And then you start, yeah, I, at one point I did a, did a debate recently about this topic and I put it at, uh, at 42%. <laughs> you know, so maybe that's a, maybe that's a stable stopping point what we need to get at some point are uh, about you know like our margins of error around these numbers <laughs> yeah well, that's why i said 10 to 50 you know it's it's probably it's hard to do better than you know one significant digit on the on these things maybe even that's even that's too much but you know the fact that it's significantly greater than zero is already that's huge where, where a lot of interest lies that's huge hey yeah. it's always great chatting with you david and i really appreciate you being on the podcast today thanks this was a lot of fun Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually 
in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 